0: This week's episode is brought to you by Talk To Me, presented by A24. It's about a group of friends discovering how to conjure spirits using an embalmed hand, and they become hooked on the new thrill until one of them goes too far and unleashes terrifying supernatural forces.
1: Directed by Danny and Michael Filippo of Racka Racka fame, some critics are calling it the scariest movie of the decade. Slim's own Letterboxd review says... Hell yeah. Mine says, f*** sake. Another Letterboxd crew member, Ala Kemp, writes, sick as lol. And another Letterboxd crew member, Flynn Slicker, says, scary as ratchet>.
0: You get the idea. Talk To Me is in theaters everywhere, July 28th.
1: Hello, this is Gemma and I'm here with my pal and yours, Slim. Hello. And welcome to another Magic Hour brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. Magic Hour is our special series in which two perfectly matched filmmakers have a conversation with each other. We get someone who's been in the business for a while. We set them up with a newcomer, someone closer to the beginning of their career, and they chat. Magic Hour lives in video form on YouTube for those who like to watch. And we like to pop it into our podcast feed too for those who like to listen. And what a treat we have for you to listen to today.
0: Gemma, on one end of the line, we have the directors of Talk To Me, the scariest new Australian movie about possession and going viral and not listening to your mother. On the other end of the line, the director of every Mad Max movie. I'm sorry, what? Every Mad Max movie. You heard me. This is insane. He's here. <laughs> not in, not physically right now, but you'll. he's here in a minute. Danny and Michael Filippo are identical twin brothers who have been making insane YouTube videos their whole lives. If you follow Raka Raka on YouTube, you'll know who we are talking about. So Talk to Me is their first feature film. It stars Sophie Wilde as a bereaved teen who joins in with a party game that's going viral in suburban Australia involving a ceramic hand. When you light a candle and hold the hand and say, talk to me, you see dead people. So it goes exactly as well as you might expect.
1: It is so bonkers. And when we were thinking who we might team up with the Rekka Rekka Boys for a chat, We looked, we've turned to their homeland of Australia first, and you've got Peter Weir, Jennifer Kent of the Babadook fame, Baz Luhrmann, Gillian Armstrong, like so many great Aussie directors, but only one of them, only one of them, Slim, is, like Danny and Michael, a twin brother of Greek heritage. And that is George Miller. Not only has he directed every Every single Mad Max film. He also made the Babe movies about our favourite little sheep herding pig and the Happy Feet films and last year's 3,000 Years of Longing with Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. George has the range. Right now he's in post-production on the next Mad Max chapter, which is the Fury Road prequel, Furiosa. It is one of the most hotly anticipated films of 2024 and not just because Anya Taylor-Joy is the star. (laughs)
0: So as this episode goes to air, the members of the WGA and the SAG-AFTRA unions are on strike for better working conditions and fair compensation for their work. The rules of the strike mean that we cannot call on writers or actors to promote their films, nor would we want to ask them to cross the picket line. But George and Danny and Michael are allowed to talk about their work as directors. And it's in that context that this conversation took place.
1: Exactly. Solidarity forever. And as well as directing the trio, talk editing, being twins, Buster Keaton, making Babe better, pure film language, building great action sequences, Australia's exploitation film history and great one-shot scenes. Enjoy.
2: I'm Danny Filippo and this is Michael Filippo. We want to say a special thank you to Letterboxd and this is their Magic Hour with the Goat, George, <laughs> <laughs> George Miller.
3: <laughs> oh, I think you're where the goat? Okay. Cool. <laughs> hey, I've got a question for you. Go for it. Um, I'm guessing that Danny is firstborn. Is that? Oh, right. No,
2: Michael. Six minutes. Michael's firstborn. Okay. why do you think that?
3: Well, I, uh, you know, I've got a twin brother too. Oh my God. But we're not identical. And we grew up together. We were in the same class every day for 20 years, but we're completely different. And I've always been interested in twins. You know, I was casting once in the United States where when you got little kids, it's always best to cast twins. And we saw lots and lots of twins for a movie. And I can always, I always had a sense, of which was first born, usually the one who speaks first. Particularly identical twins, they the one who slightly nanosecond before starts to speak before the other one. The first one who's one step ahead of the other as they walk into into a room and stuff like that. So I was just trying to the way you're sitting, you're sitting back, Michael. You're sitting forward, Danny. But usually it's the other way. It's something I've observed.
2: Well, He's yeah. a hog. I think that's all it is. Yeah, maybe that normally, but Danny's a bit of a hog. No, no, no. I, don't, I, don't. I think that the firstborn is usually the more, uh, yeah, more masculine twin as well. Like I'm the nerdy twin. Michael's more oh, really, right.
3: like uh, rough. And the other thing we've got in common is that my background's Greek as well. We were a yeah. we, uh, completely different different generation from you. My parents came you know, early last century. and oh, and. Yeah. Uh, it's a really big deal, I think, to have a twin for me. Even though we're not, we don't make films together. We're always telling each other stories. So how how was it? How does that How does that dynamic work for you? Were you always entertaining each other? Were you finishing other sentences and all that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah, like, like in terms of the filmmaking side of it, I know that like uh, we've got a pretty united vision when it comes to directing. Uh, but we definitely can't write together. It, it feels like it's a bit more of a personal thing. And uh, I struggle to be that open. It's like a, a bit more awkward with Michael for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like we've always, it's good to have that kind of backup, I guess, when like recording and filming. Like we both have the exact same idea, right? When we're on set. I feel like having a twin, especially directing with like a brother or sibling is like a bit of a cheat code because, you know, you can kind of delegate the tasks a bit. So wait, did, was your was your brother ever into filmmaking at all? No.
3: But but we, we we were always playing. We grew, grew up in rural Australia, Chinchilla, Queensland, and we were um, always playing as kids for the first ten years of our, our lives. Um, there was Saturday matinee. We'd go to the movies, uh, and then we'd play. We not not quite like you guys, but we build building underground tunnels and castles and painting garbage bin cans and riding on horses pretending to be knights and all that sort of stuff. There was no ability to make film, no thought about it, but it was very, very playful. And you you guys have been doing it for for so long together. But it's very, very familiar to me, and that's why I, I, it's just a very special privilege, I think, to be a twin because you've got that shared life experience and you're bouncing stuff off each other all the time. And I imagine you guys did that all the time. 100%. So,
2: so I. are, are you the older twin or the younger twin?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm the older twin. But but he but he he's tall and skinny, I'm short and fat. He had I had black hair, he had he had curly, curly curly blonde hair, he's blue-eyed, I'm black brown eyed, he's uh left-handed, I'm right-handed. We were completely different. But we were in every class together, we're in high school together, we're in university together, and we're always telling each other what our experiences were and comparing it. We're still doing this after all these decades. Um, and we're still, you know, saying, Hey, do you remember this? Do you remember that? What was your experience and entertaining each other? But he, he I, 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 I kind of drifted into filmmaking and we went to medical school together and he stayed working as a doctor for, he just retired. So, but oh it was a very, very strong shared experience of life. Yeah. Does
2: he like your films or does he critique them?
3: Is he like. Um, I to, to be honest, we don't talk much about it. We it's more about life observation. He had no intention to, to make films. The one thing he really is is incredibly funny. Uh, he he for some reason he 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 turns everything into a, a, a lovely joke to disarm people.
2: When you were finishing university, like, uh, how did you first start experimenting with films? Because obviously. We had video cameras growing up and then we had YouTube to like make stuff and upload stuff. How are you experimenting with uh, like becoming a director?
3: Well, to be perfectly honest, I realised it started when we were playing as kids, a bit like you guys, I think. I realised all the things I was doing back then, we, I'm still doing all this time later. We put on shows, exercising your imagination, but we do a lot of drawing, uh, we do a lot of painting, We'd be making things. When I got to uh, university, I really got serious about trying to understand it. There was no opportunity to make, to make things. I never dreamed of, of not being a doctor, and, and I never thought I'd be a film director. I just got really, really curious about the process. First of all, art. I was very interested in two-dimensional art. And then really thought, well, what's film about? Started to see a lot of films, went to film societies, went to the film festivals, really read a lot of books about it purely out of interest. And then had the opportunity to make a short little film when I was in my final years of med- medical studies. And that led to a workshop where I met people, like-minded people, and particularly, uh, Byron Kennedy in a film workshop, who is my partner. My, cu- my company is called Kennedy Miller. We made. We started to make films together, particularly the first Mad Max. And that's how it started. There was no practice. There was just really working on, sh- on someone else's short film, and maybe doing sound one week or doing picking up an extra Bolex camera. They are all spring wine cameras that they used to have in those <laughs> days, and yes. and and, uh, and then having to make that leap from a short film to a feature film because there's no other. Uh, no other way to do it. You could get a job, maybe in television, but it was a completely different path.
2: Wow! Looking back on your stuff, like the Mad Maxes are wild, like, <laughs> crazy, crazy, amazing. Like the stunt work and stuff is like you—you you watch that stuff and it's like. It you, you makes you proud to be an Aussie. I think you're like, yeah. Look at like, look at the crazy action stuff, like yeah, you know, the Aussies were making back in the day. Like it's amazing. What was that? Was there any like uh, references to Mad Max or films that you were aspiring to?
3: Look, without going into a long thing, the big, big thing that r- really occurred to me was uh, pure film language is found in the action sequences because it was defined in in the silent era. I read a, a book. Called um, the Parades Gone By, written by a critic scholar in the sixties, Kevin Brownlow, and he said basically the syntax of film was all decided before sound, mainly in the action movies. In the the big heroes of that were people like Buster Keaton with all their stunts. I don't know if you've seen the General and all that stunts, and you must, you guys must have. Been, he you're like his offspring in some way, and. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and Harold Lloyd, you know, hanging off the clock at Charlie Chaplin. And they really, really define the language. So I try to make movies that are like silent movies first. And then you add sound and music and so on. I, I treated action really seriously. It wasn't kind of exploitation cinema to me because as I said it, as I said, it was like essential, pure, film language was defined back then. And then as time went on, I, I was very influenced, particularly with the Mad Max, With there was a chariot race in Ben-Hur, the one made in the late 50s. Do you remember that chariot race? And yeah. Were- yeah he goes in between
2: the, the horses. Yeah. And the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And, and, and then there was, uh, and then I remember seeing films like French Connection and Bullet. And in particular, one film that really impressed me was Duel by Steven Spielberg. I think it was his first film. It was, yeah. Know, yeah, and 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 all those things. I thought, okay, they're in line with what I thought cinema was. Since since then, without going yeah. to a long story, since then, by putting images together, you, you're playing with the dimension of time. And once you get into the dimension of time, you're basically getting into narrative storytelling. What is a story? And, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Not only, uh, how to tell a story, but why we tell each other stories, why you're encouraged to invite people into experiences that you guys put together. And that's why I really got into your film. It really gave me a really powerful experience. I, it was, it was, it was just a riot that I got into. I was thinking about. I, For a while I was thinking about the technique and stuff that you were doing, but after a time I just forgot all about that and just got into the experience, which is what you're looking for with every film. Mm. I can tell from from what you guys do. um, It's also partly comes from the tools of filmmaking at a simple level. You know you can do special effects, visual effects. You know from performance, your performers yourself, so you know what's required there, all those practical things come together plus the more sort of mysterious things, the the experiences of life as you're talking about, stories you might have heard, films you might have seen, all of those things come together. So for me it's a sort of uh, you always have ideas going in, way too many ideas. And some of them it's a little like a, Survival of the Fittest, Darwinian, some of them insist on themselves more than others. So you're saying to yourself, oh, gee, and you, in those moments when you're free associating, you might be going for a drive or walk, you may be having a shower, waking up in the middle of the night, and those stories are the ones that keep growing and growing until you get excited about it. And it's not just one little fragment of idea. Uh, It idea. It, it, it seems to play out in scenes. But, but you don't know what's underneath it. You don't know where the, the real substance of the story yeah. is. And then pretty soon you stick, You have a sense, a little bit like some sort of detector, like a Geiger counter, show, you know, where they go do, 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 and the, ra- the, the dramatic radiation is decreasing and, and you get guided it, into that. That's how it sort of happens to me. The typical sort of example, without going to a long story, too long a story is is um I didn't ever want to do any more Mad Maxes. Each one I do I did I thought okay that's enough. I'm interested in other stuff, but for, for, for Fury Road it had been thirty years. And I was walking across a pedestrian crossing, and an idea for the film came like in my head, very simple idea. And I said, and by the time I got to cross the road, I said no no I don't want to do that. About two weeks later, I was catching an aeroplane from Los Angeles to Sydney over the Pacific in the middle of the night, and the story started to play out. I did just like I was daydreaming. Very, very common. And then I landed in Sydney, and I remember saying to Doug Mitchell, my producing partner, I said, you know, I think there's another Mad Max coming. You know, 10 years later, we end up making it. But that's how it starts. It's not one thing. It's Whole series of forces come together. I think it's like that with all creativity, and it sounds like that's what happens. Um, talk to me. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I, I, have, I have another. So I've got so many questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, over the years that you've been in uh, doing films, like, how would you describe the way that the Australian landscape has changed in film? Because it feels like it feels like was that heyday? Do you think those that exploitation era or that those seventies and eighties films? Like, how, how have you seen it track or change?
3: Well, if you if you look at the 70s in Australian cinema, it was basically uh, a film, a, a newfound medium, in in a sense that uh, Australia, well, uh, theoretically Australia made the first ever feature film, the Ned Kelly film, uh, but and, but people weren't really making films. There were some pioneers doing the occasional film, and then a whole bunch of people started to make films in the 70s. And most of those films were catching up with our history. If you look at them, they were all period films. Break a Morant, Picnic Hanging Rock, My Brilliant Career. They were all catching up with our history. The interesting thing about it was most of the films, most of the filmmakers, the only way they could see films, there was no internet, uh, were at the film festivals where a lot of European and some Asian cinema was seen. So the the Australian film, English-speaking country, was basically a hybrid between European cinema or or the so-called art film and the Hollywood film. And for a while there, it kind of stuck. Pretty soon we ran out of history and we had to make it a little bit sort of more contemporary. And Australian culture wasn't unique enough, let's say, to actually have stories that would r- really have resonance anywhere else but Australia, so that was more done on television. Uh, the only the only thing that one could say is unique about Australia is the ind- indigenous stories because they are still telling stories wh- wherever the culture is preserved, particularly particularly in the Australian desert through the art and the painting and so on. And, and that's the only thing you, that we have unique. So now we get guys like you who don't go to film school, who don't go follow the tradition, just basically doing it out of your own instincts, your own process, and the fact that you had the ability to get together and do it as little kids and put it together and learn on the job. You, you're doing way more dynamic stuff than those of us who might have followed a traditional path, the one thing I can say with all of that is that it's always changing. It's never static. It's it's, it's always evolving. What worked ten years ago is not going to work today. The tools are changing radically. I I can't believe that, that we, you know we're doing this furiosa movie. I can't believe how much things have changed from ten years ago when we did. Wow. Mad Max Fury Road. And you've got to stay, stay with that. I, I mean, you guys, do you guys edit your own stuff? Oh,
2: uh, well, yeah, we do, yeah. yeah. And, like, we would edit in between. So if we had to wrap out of a location and we are like, there for two days, right, we'd shoot on day, on set all day, then go home, edit the rushes all night, and then no sleep, go back to set to wrap up the scene just so we knew what what it is we needed to get, you know, and in between setups, everything, we would be editing. Uh, and then the poor editor, cause we had an editor, Jeff Lamb, when we got to the edit suite, I had an edit of the film, Danny had an edit of the film, and Jeff had an edit of the film. <laughs> so I <it> was like <laughs> going through scene by scene and, lo- and looking at each one, like what tells the story in a more that, that, could, that, in that, in a cohesive way. I what was your question? I don't think, uh, do, you, do, you, do you mean like do we lead our own stuff outside of each other or did you mean? Do you edit your own stuff? Do you edit, oh, do you yeah. edit your
3: own stuff? Yeah, well, 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 when you said, Michael, you have, you'd be editing on your own computer uh, at night for the next day. You'd be doing the same, Danny, on your own computer. So you'd have yeah. two different versions. Would you show <laughs> the version and discuss it? And then yeah. you you adjust what you're doing on set as you finish out the scene. Yeah. Well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was like we had such a
2: twi- tight turnaround, and we had no budget to uh, do any pickup shots, so we just had to make sure that we got everything that we could possibly need. So we, we were just like both editing and making sure that we were on the same page of what coverage we thought we needed to get and pick up over those next two days, because it was like three days in the location. We have to make sure that we get everything that we could possibly need. Yeah, because it, it was supposed yeah, to be an mm-hmm. eight through, and yeah. then it dropped to seven, five, ten to right, six yeah. to five. So like we are we were like really up against the wall every day of the shoot, you know. Um so we just need to be on the ball. And it's hard to switch off at the end of the day, you know? Your mind's still yeah. I'll just edit. I was yeah. yeah, filmmaking is so overstimulating. Like every part of it is like you just feel alive while doing it and there's so much to do and it's all so much fun to do. So you could never sleep. So what happens?
3: Do you go psychotic with lack of sleep or do you what happens?
2: Uh, you, well, yeah, you catch up on the weekends, which is really good. Yeah. You And then also our our schedule was constantly changing from night shoots to day shoots. I think that the way that we were shooting allowed the room to to get some sleep between. Sometimes Danny would do the stay up all night, and then I'd sleep that night, and then he'd come (laughs) set no sleep, and then we'd reverse it. You know, we'd switch it. Okay, okay. that's
3: brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On on Furiosa that we're doing uh, doing now, we were cutting on set as well because um, uh, some of our crew, PJ Vert, the first AD. And others had worked with Bong Joon-ho, and, right. and 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 also worked with Tilda Swinton, who worked with Bong Joon-ho, and that and they showed me a picture, which is I think common in Korea and in Asia, where they're actually cutting while they're shooting. We sort of did that in a de facto way on Fury Road in Video Village, just to see if it, if the thing was right. But the whole film wasn't being assembled. It makes a big difference if you can do it because the technology allows you to do it now. And, and if you do it, you're doing two things. You, you're making sure that you've got what you want, but you're also saying, Oh, well, we don't need this. We had something scheduled. We don't need the cluster because it works in, in the wide shot or, or whatever. That, yeah. that wasn't available back in the day. You know, I remember reading about a film called Jenna, uh, a first ever color film made in the 50s in Australia, first Technicolor movie. They shot up in the Northern Territory. They take the un, un, unexposed film, put it in the cans. They put it in a hessian bag. They put the hessian bag in a river to keep it cool because it's so hot up there. A plane would come along eventually, or, or they or they took it to a plane. It was flown to London, where the, it was the only Technicolor uh, lab that could process it, and they didn't see any of the film. Until six months after they finished oh shooting,
2: <laughs>
3: the only person who could see the film was the camera operator looking through the little, you know, the little viewfinder.
1: Yeah, now oh, that's
3: completely yes. different. So you've got the ability to cut, cut things. E- even going back to um, Mad Max Two, you know, in the in the early eighties, we were shooting in Broken Hill. We didn't see any any of our rushes or dailies until. Uh, a week, at the end of the week, it was all wow. being done in Sydney. So the only uh, the only person who saw the film was Dean Simler, the camera operator and cinematographer.
2: What happens if he missed a shot? Everyone oh, look at him and go, <laughs> you know, when the Russians come in and, like, he missed something or something? Is oh, I mean, give awkward. him the dip stand?
3: <laughs> all, all, all the time. All the time. And it's and, and, and like, oh, don't. the. the the best and worst experience I ever had was having to cut the first Mad Max myself on a on a tiny little it was called an HKS viewer, and for a whole year because we ran out of money uh, we, we we couldn't afford to have an editor. Um, I, I cut the picture while Byron Kennedy cut the sound. It was very low budget, like you guys are doing. And I remember every day having to face. All the mistakes that I made on set. Yeah. Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I ask them to do it more quickly? Why did I ask them to turn that way and not that way? Why did Why didn't I get that line this way? All those All those things um, I was confronted with. So they, I still carry the scar tissue and the learning from that. Yeah. I, I said, so "I'll do that again," and it's the best experience you could possibly have. In a way, it, it turns out to be a really, really good thing. And what what you guys are doing is is absolutely the perfect way of doing it. I'm sure in the way you perform things, you're making little adjustments take to take when you're doing yeah. your own, uh, own stuff. And that's what you're doing, I guess, in quick time. Uh, all, all I'm saying is that once it was ultra slow motion. Like it took yeah. ages. You sort of had to guess what it was going to be rather than what you actually is in front of you. So there's a lot of sitting there thinking, okay, have we got what we want? And and I remember the great camera operators, the uh, uh, guys, they've all won Academy Awards, but the best ones I've worked with are guys like, I mentioned Dean Sembler, Johnny Seal, Andrew Lesney. They all as they used to come off the viewfinder, they'd be processing what they said. They had really good memory, like great stunt guys, micro-movements. They had great memory for what happened, and they would be able to sort of intuitively say uh, it, it looked good for, I'd be able to say, it looked good from where I was sitting, but what was it like through the lens? And they'd say, yes, but, or they'd say, great. And yeah, it was yeah. always an intuitive but it had to be in the memory; it wasn't anywhere else. It was in the that We're going to see the footage a week later.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Heavy anxiety when the, the reels yeah. come I yeah. could imagine. Yeah.
3: Do you storyboard? Do you discuss it? Do you preview? What do? You, how do you approach it?
2: Yeah, well, I know that initially when I am writing, I do have like key images in my head uh, that I that I am really focused on and that I am really confident about, and I know represent the scene. And then it was just that process of once we were in pre-production and I was, uh, we got our amazing cinematographer, Aaron McCluskey, they were all, like, really able to go through every single scene and then block it out. And we pre-shot so many of the scenes just on our phones and then pieced okay. them together. Yeah, and then just tried to find what that visual language was going to be like, because we knew that we wanted the possession sequences to feel so much different from the rest of the film and for it to feel like uh a bit like an astral projection and feel like the camera's floating around and tied to the entities that are inside these kids. Um so like that process was always just pre-shooting on our phones and then just putting it together and us all acting it out. Yeah, so it was like storyboarding some of that. Yeah. Like, yeah, storyboarding those main key images. I, I, it, it went Look. over, it went over like we when we went through the uh with McCliskey our DOP. Then we like played it through, like blocking out with the uh with the crew, and then when the cast came in, we blocked it out with them again. And then when we get to the location, it's like again, and like so, it's always like forming and changing. And
3: so, were you yeah. able to get the cast early to to actually do some of this iPhone yeah. stuff?
2: We had we had a week. I think we were like had a week of the cast. Yeah, it wasn't. Total. We yeah. wish we had longer, but yeah. it, it's so valuable, especially with the cast we found playing through scenes, like all the scenes, and even changing some of the dialogue, the outcomes to some scenes, and having them play through that. Or even playing, we even did scenes that didn't happen in the movie but happened in the character's life beforehand. So they could sort of live those experiences together and try and like create a bond with everyone and make, make them feel like they'd, they'd known each other for a while. It uh, yeah. was a, yeah, a fun process, such an incredible process. Yeah. Can,
3: can I ask you, the very first shot of the movie, that extended shot at the party. Can I ask you how many takes and what was the thinking about that shot? It,
2: it, it was 10 takes. It was, So it was the first shot of the film, but it was the last shot of the shoot. Uh, yes. And we didn't wrap until probably 4.30 in the morning, I think. it was. So, yeah. Yeah, so it, was, and it was freezing cold. Those poor, like some kids like jumping in the pool. Like, it was like troopers. Oh, and, like, yeah. Yes. And 10 doors. We had 10 doors and on the the last take. We're like, we got one more show of this. We got no more doors after this. And then make this. Yeah. 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 But like there's so many amazing wonders in in film history and they're always like so engrossing. And and there's there's nothing cutting. Like you are are so into that scene and and it just feels real. And I, I knew that I wanted to find a way to like pull the audience into our world. Like to open it. Like we've got like we sort of bookend it. There's like a one to towards the end of the film as well. But I knew that we wanted to start with an Ape where we like literally grabbing the audience and like pulling them into our world. And it's uh revealing something new with every corner. And you know, uh the the always coming in to grab his brother like and, and grab him out, like from the darkness. And then, you know, so it's him starting like from the living going to where to the dead where his brother's connecting with. And then trying to pull him out and getting stopped halfway, like in limbo, if that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, I remember Aaron McCluskey had shot an amazing short film called Nursery Rhymes. And that's how I I found out about Aaron and his work was I just saw this short film and I was obsessed with it. And the way that uh, the action led the camera, it was this incredible uh, one shot that unfolded. And as soon as I saw that, I knew I wanted to shoot my film. And I was, like, reaching out to him on Instagram and everything, like, please, like, I really want you to shoot my movie because I, I just knew I connected with it so so much.
3: Well, there's, there's, there's been a lot of great one-shot scenes. The way that ended with the two brothers and the choreography, it led you to a certain expectation and then it yeah. subverted. And you do that all the time. I mean, this is one of the things that I find had me leaning into the film. Maybe it's better not to even mention it and let people experience it themselves. But yeah. by way of example, I really, how many times have you seen the trope of people in the car singing when they're driving along? You see that, you've seen it for a long time and its it can get a bit cliché. It's always fun, but it gets cliché. But what you do, two things that really, really caught me. One was... Um, The enthusiasm with with, which the actor sung the song, particularly the the guy playing Riley with his, (laughs) you know.
2: Yeah, 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 with all his veins sticking out, like
3: screaming for his life. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then the the kangaroo. It's like you're going one track where your expectations, you, you, you felt it familiar and then something happens that you don't expect. That happened over and over again, uh, in my, my experience of watching it, and even the ringtone on a phone, I've, you know, too often you hear the same ringtone. But now you get a ringtone that I've never heard before. It's <laughs> like, you guys have are, are keeping that stuff alive all the time, right through to the very end. Oh, oh my god!
2: <laughs> well, what, what do you think? What do you think over all the films that you've watched in your? In your years of uh, experiencing cinema, what do you think? What's an ending that always sticks with you that you always come back to?
3: Well, for me, and this varies with everybody, that you have a favourite film that affected you uh, for some reason uh, at at the time. It's like favourite song that sometime in the process of growing up that's meant something to you. I think that happens with film. So when you ask the question, I, I, I. The the film I found myself back, you know, uh, over the years watching, not anymore today, watching over and over again, was Godfather 2, Godfather 2. And the end shot of Godfather 2 had had a big influence on me. I'm I'm sure as soon as we finish this talk I'll I'll have a lot of of ideas, but the one that most stuck with me over recent years was the the end of – Fablemans, the the fablements the uh Steven Spielberg movie yes. Um, yes. The, that ending with John Ford and the adjustment of the camera that yeah uh, was, was that stuck with me they' the first two that come to mind
2: yeah you know what just popped into my mind then when you were talking about when when we're doing like a big stunt or like uh sometimes we do live events like uh like a bit, like that, that are like Big stunts and kind of dangerous. I always listen to the main trailer for Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> the first trailer. Uh dude. I I don't want to butcher it, but I I put that play it in my in my head. And I like, I love the way that that trailer unfolds and that music, the trailer music in that always amps me up. Like I, a- at the end of it, I'm like, all right, all right, let's go, let's go, let's do it. It's so Energetic and like, uh, it has this like grand like allure to or something that's like, uh, infectious. That's like really like on our level for some reason. I like we yeah. just like really uh, tap into uh, it. Yeah, I'm tap like a- into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
3: that's great. That, that was a great. That was a great uh, team led at, at, at Warner Brothers at the time by a guy called Massey Rafani and whoever they, however they put together. I mean, it's one thing to make a film. Very difficult to cut a trailer for your own film because every yeah. shot has different connotations, and yeah. uh, I've never tried yeah. to do it. But if I did, I know I do it. wouldn't do a good job. So yeah, they did a fantastic job. They That's really incredible. did. They captured what the film was trying to do, which is really great. Yeah,
2: well, like even the the action sequences. I can't wait to see. Uh, so, yeah, like, yeah, I cannot yeah. wait because. Uh, Fury Road has some of the best I I feel ever like action sequences like it has that uh, that the way the way like like the way you were talking about storytelling through action is so clear in that film like it's so uh, engaging and that, that, it's just the flow for me. The flow of the action sequences are just unlike anything I've ever seen. Like uh, so, yeah. when I heard you do, you're you doing another one, yeah, you're you're a master of your craft right now. So like, I just can't picture what Furious is going to look like. I yeah, feel I'm like so pumped. <laughs>
3: yeah. well, well, you know, when's the first time when you put talk talk to me together? When you actually sat with a dispassionate audience, someone who hadn't worked on the film, someone where you actually sat and felt. The audience's response. When's the first time that happened for you?
2: It was after I think the first cut that we'd put together that I was, I felt was feeling good about. First person we showed it to was the editor's son, who was uh, around 16. Like the editor, Jeff Lamb, who's amazing. We loved working with him, edits his like homemade studios like underneath his house. And so like we just grabbed his son and said, Can you watch this and tell us, you know, and, and there were scenes that I was so uh sure about there were more drama scenes that i could feel when things were lagging you could just feel it in the room so there were, there were moments where I was like this has to be in here this needs to be in there that needs to be in there and then you sit down in there and then you're just like feeling the energy shift or change and like feeling when things like climax i know that one thing i wanted was to build up to a bit of a car wreck moment that is like building building and having a crash happen and then like be like sort of scatterbrained i was in this car accident when i was 16 I remember the, the night was like, it felt so vibrant and it felt like we we're moving along. And when the crash happened, I was disoriented and like everything sort of slowed down. I try to capture that sort of feeling uh, with the film and, and like uh, just feeling and reading his energy. Like that was, yeah, after the first cut of film. And mm. it's funny when you watch it with a teenager like that, that has nothing to do with film and you're like, your whole life's been put into it. You're like, what'd you think? And he's like, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every time that I finish a script, it's always Michael that I show first. And again, he will just yeah. like be brutally honest and like be like boring, crap. Like what is like he like uh, and you need someone that you can like, yeah, that you believe. I think I like yeah. used some smart words than that. Though. No, I don't think so. You're, so. you're so mean with those first drafts. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, have you got someone that you share your scripts with when you when you finish? Is there someone that you always share and trust?
3: My partner uh, Margaret Seeksel, who, who's an editor, she she has is one of those people who, well, I, I, I know we're running out of time, but I don't know if you ever saw the first Babe movie.
2: Of course, yeah.
3: we we cut the movie. We just got together. We've been together for thirty years now, and I, I remember sitting it down to show the movie because I thought it was really good. She sat and watched it and when it finished, she looked at me. I said, what do you think, what do you think? And she said, you're not going to release it like that, are you? <laughs> and I that. I said, what's wrong with it? She said, she, she cut Fury Road. So I knew, this is the first time I knew how intuitively she understood drama very well. Whole host of reasons why. And she, I said, what's wrong with it? She said, um, well, first of all, it's got no dramatic tension. The story is episodic. It was a children's story with chapter headings and so on. The film was very episodic. Th- that's the biggest problem. So you don't know where it's going. It meanders. So she came up. It's one thing to identify why something doesn't work. It's way harder to be able to say, Perhaps this is a solution, or intuitively feel where the solution is, and she immediately came up with it. She said, "Why don't you break it into chapters and have chapter headings?" So there's a whole bit about um, uh, there's a little pig. He's he, he wants to go and join the dogs or whatever. But well, the audience didn't know it clearly at the time. But but, but Christmas is coming up, so Margaret suggested putting a chapter heading, which was pork is a very sweet meat. So you have all these scenes building up to Christmas that unless you know that the intention is to eat the pig, there's no real drama in it. So there were several of those chapter headings and they made all the difference in the film and uh, it saved the film. The only thing we did in the test screening, we realised that the little kids couldn't read it because parents in the test screening were turning to read the words to the little kids. So we had the little mice say, "Pork is very." Squeaky. That that came that came from uh, Margaret, and ever since that, that that's been happening. She's the only one person I wanted to cut Fury Road because and it made a huge difference on that film because she whatever we shot. She was able to astutely assess it, its place in the entirety of the film. That's the wow. key to it. No part is greater than the whole. The whole is always privileged over the part, so you've got to lose. Scenes that are moments I really, really loved, only about three of them, but I really loved that we couldn't fit into the movie and the movie is much better for it. You know? Yeah, yeah. we had
2: the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it's painful. You, you you fight it for as long as you can, like in the edit. But you know what's coming. You know that snips coming. You know. Yes. A few of them as well. And it took it took it took for our editor to edit them out and then sit us down to watch it once they were edited out to us to realise. Yeah, let's just watch it without them in. Just one. Yeah, minute. yeah, yeah.
3: That that, that, that that thing you say, uh, if it occurs to you to cut it, cut it.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: You've been listening to a special Magic Hour edition of The Letterbox Show. Thanks to our guests, George Miller and Danny and Michael Filippo. Talk To Me is in theatres in Australia and New Zealand on July 27, and in the US and UK July 28, and Furiosa is expected in cinemas next year. Thanks to our crew, AJ and Slim for the edit, production coordinator Sophie Shin, our editorial producer Brian Formo, and a special thanks to Courtney Mayhew and Ahi.
0: You can watch all our Magic Hour episodes on YouTube. And the music you've heard on this episode is Junkie XL's soundtrack to Mad Max Fury Road, Who Are You by Takara, and Free Spirits by Sadistic. If you like what you're hearing, we love mail. Drop us a line with compliments or questions to podcast at letterbox.com. And while you're doing that, I have it on good authority that our best-in-show pod team of Gemma, Mia, and Brian are gearing up to bring you some new episodes looking at the SAG, AFTRA, and WGA strike and what it means for fall festivals, what it means for the upcoming awards season, and for you, the at-home film lover. If you have any questions at all about the strike that you'd love for us to find answers for, use that same email, podcast at letterbox.com.
1: The Letterboxd Show is a tape deck production. That'll do, pig.
0: You've been waiting years to end an episode officially like that.
1: This is this, this is a tape deck podcast.